Well, first of all, I think we ought to be clear, clear about the facts. Uh, most of you, judging by your ages, know a lot more about this than I do. But my impression is that the new technology is bringing about illiteracy, not literacy. Uh, I can see it directly with, uh, I mean, I get a ton of email, constant flow of email. I noticed a couple of years ago that there's a change in the character of the email. A lot of it is very short. Some of it is so short it actually fits in the subject line. And uh, somebody pointed out to me it's probably Twitter. Welcome to D-Next, the Innovation and Entrepreneurs Podcast. And I'm your host, Paul Coides. On this episode, we speak to Don Boswell, president of WNED PBS and Buffalo Toronto Public Media, on the future of democracy, public interest, and the media. Don Boswell, thank you very much for joining us today and being a part of D-Next. Hey, Paul, thank you for having me. Don, I want to start with uh, a big question that has a lot to do with media literacy and democracy. But my question is, why is public media important today in this day and age? I would say, Paul, it's a, another perspective I think as we all know, there are so many different perspectives out there, some good, some bad, uh, some, you know, pretty much, you know, have their own agendas. Uh, there's sensationalism that takes place and sometimes uh, it's not fun on various media. Uh, but I think public media has tried to avoid all of that and just be true to itself and be an entity that can be trusted and that at least speaks to balance and fairness for all. And I think you know, nowadays, and knowing all that's taking place, it's nice to have a safe place to uh, come to that you know that you can get that fairness and balance and uh, not try to be so sensationalized in the reporting or aspects of broadcasting that uh, will drive away audiences instead of build audiences. And I think that's what we've been able to do during the pandemic is uh, actually have people come to us for various reasons and we've been building on that trust. Do you think then public media has a way of, I guess, shaping behaviors in the public with regards to how they consume media? So you talked about the other side of the media fence in terms of sensationalism and a lot of headline grabbing news. Public media tends to have a more balanced thoughtful approach. Do you see then a, cha- uh, uh, a response in the audience to behave in more thoughtful and balanced ways? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I think it depends. I think it depends on the person who um, can know the difference between what's good journalism or good programming or good content uh, and realize is this something uh, if it isn't, you know, should I continue to listen to it? Uh, or do they, they use us or use those other entities in a way that they want to kind of hear what's being said 
on both sides or at least get a, a, a wider perspective. Um, but I, I do think it's up to the person who may say, hey, I, I'm a Fox listener regardless, or I'm a CNN and whatever they say, I'm going to be there. Or if they use both of those and then they say, well, I'm going to put public media into that mix so I can see how they treat that sort of message. But, but you know, there are people who are hardcore that only want to listen to the certain aspects of the reporting or how things are done in that certain way. And, and, and that's their privilege. Uh, but I think the more educated, hopefully, a viewer or listener wants a broader perspective. And I think, you know, we've become hopefully um, more of someone they'll use, realizing, you know, there is a need for opportunities to hear another perspective and, and realizing it's trusted. Okay, in your 40 years of a long and distinguished career in public media, how much has the world changed in that time or has it changed? And what have you learned in that process? You know, it's just amazing the various platforms now, now that people can use to uh, receive information and, and basically spend their time in, um, you know, using the media. And, you know, way back when there were like a handful or so, maybe two handfuls. Uh, now, you know, you have maybe over 300 choices of where uh, you could spend your time on whatever platform and, and picking up on that uh, sort of media, you know, uh, glitz, if you want to call it that. Uh, and I, I think it's just the sign of the times that um, there are more people who are offering different product, which is good. Um, but I think there's, again, that sort of, where do you find your, um, you know, 20 most interesting sort of media platforms and media usage. And I think as you're younger, it could be 40. As you get older, it could be 12 or 10. Uh, and it's kind of a matter, I think it's a matter of fact of where do you think you could best be utilized and heard and knowing that there's competition out there and you always if you're going to gather an audience, you've got to make sure that your content is relevant, it's balanced, it's useful, um, it's uh, inquisitive, it, it in some way should challenge you um, in your thinking. And I think if you can do that, I think you're going to build a bigger audience than those that are just one-sided. So on that note, how do you think social media has fundamentally changed the public's relationship to to media or media's ability to shape public opinion. Yeah, that's um, that's been very difficult, I think, for those who again and are looking for that uh, real, you know, accurate, uh, uh, balanced, you know, sort of uh, news or public affairs or even you know entertainment content, you know, and and um, I, I just feel that um, it's a struggle. It, it, it really is a struggle um, to be in the world where there is so much opportunity to utilize uh, the various platforms and to really have the ability to be able to gain share, market share, uh, gain, uh, I would call it uh, time spent listening or watching in a week uh, because there's so many choices that people have in any given week. And so how do you start building 
that time spent listening or watching to your airwaves. And unlike some of the commercial entities, we don't always have the promotional dollars behind a lot of this. So we struggle in, uh, I think a lot of it's word of mouth, you know, for us. Uh, but again, I think we have to stay true to our mission and try not to be something we're not and uh, build the sort of um, balance that I think people basically feel when they are with us, that there is an enjoyment that comes out of that. Uh, of course, there could be a disagreement, but at least it's an enjoyment knowing that uh, they either can agree or disagree, but at least they feel that they're a part of that opportunity to um, take away something that maybe they couldn't find somewhere else and they can find it with us. Do you think there's anything that social media does better than public media or that can um, teach public media a new way of doing things? Well, I think it's just a, a matter of, um, you know, again, part of it is how do we um, include those sorts of things that we feel we can't do and find ways that we can use our platforms when we're not using them, um, you know, maybe 24 hours a day uh, and find ways in which uh, we can build and make more attractive the things that we think fit our mission and our culture and our audiences and, and look at collaborations. I, I think, you know, one of the big successes uh, for our ability to be more onward and providing more content is collaboration, you know, collaborations and partnerships. So how do we begin, you know, working and seeking and having people seek us and looking at how we can maximize what they're doing along what we're doing and build a bigger audience together. So there is a lot that we can learn because we can't be everywhere and everything for everybody. And I think the new people in the block, if they have something that they feel, uh, you know, sort of fits our market and opportunities, then we should look to ways and ways that we can find uh, partnerships and ways we can build off of each other. Okay, you have a unique perspective of Canada. You're based in Buffalo and you have the vantage point of uh, seeing Canadians from, you know, just that bit of distance away uh, and from an American point of view in many ways. From, in your opinion, what role do you think public media plays in the shaping of Canadian culture? Is it the same thing on both sides of the border? Yeah, I, I think we need to learn more and know more about Canadian, you know, uh, news events, history, arts and culture, uh, medical. Uh, there's just so much of the Canadian side that unfortunately doesn't get on the U.S. side. And it's a shame. And I know that's something it's been great to work with you on, Paul, is how do we tell those untold stories and opportunities of a voice uh, that makes up all of Canada or the you know diversity of voices and how do we find those unique stories that we think can be shared for both sides of the border and and you know give Americans more of a perspective of you know Canadian interest in their history their their thinking you know politically or um, you know arts and history and culture how do we tell those stories and find ways to make them more visible in the US side? I think a lot of ways Canada is overwhelmed by, you know, U.S. sort of media. But I, I personally feel that there's not enough 
uh, on the U.S. side. And I think that's where, you know, our organization has been trying to reach out and hearing those voices, finding those partnerships, having people like yourself identify stories, uniqueness uh, of things that can be binational. And then how do we in some way, you know, bring that back to the U.S. and share that with the media uh, as well as, you know, the various platforms and utilize either more of abundance of diversity of things that we haven't had before because we are making those inroads to do more with, you know, Canadian sorts of uh, media sources. So in your time in this particular vantage point, what have you learned about Canadians or what's, what's impressed you about us? Well, I mean, clearly uh, I'm amazed when I'm in Canada or various boards that I serve on and, and even with our member base, how much Canadians know about just not politics in the U.S., but international politics across the globe. And I don't think Americans, you know, do that sort of depth in their sort of understanding on the political side, um, all that the world offers in various sorts of means of understanding um, the diverse political world, so to speak. Because uh, there is an engagement. If you do spend that time as Canadians do, they do have a wider depth of experience and understanding you know, the world affairs instead of the U.S. only being concentrated in the U.S. affairs. And I think that makes them more even engaged in those sorts of cultures because of the political side of music, uh, history, um, you know, just, you know, the, the sort of knowledge of new health sorts of things that are taking place you know, around the world. I mean, you know, you know, Canada has this great relations with Cuba. And we all know that Cuba, you know, has uh, worked, you know, very hard with dealing with lung cancer and things that Canadians have taken advantage over the years. That is just now coming to the U.S and realizing there's opportunities in health and wellness that Cuba offers that we've never really been able to put our arms around. But I think Canadians are also more engaged in other things internationally because of you know, the diversity in their country, um, more so than I'd say in the US side of it. And are more you know, able to accept and make available that diversity than the U.S. has and being somewhat limited into that reach into international sorts of opportunities. Okay, looking at how you see public media evolving in the future, there's been obviously a big change in demographics and the change in how things get funded. And there's certainly a lot of discussion in Canada about how our public broadcaster uh, is being funded and certainly in the news now about traditional revenue models not being uh, necessarily the way to support it. In your opinion, is there a place for, I guess, new thinkers and entrepreneurs in the public media of the future? Absolutely. You know, Paul, it's almost like real estate where they say location, location, location for real estate. You know, in our business, when you look at the various platforms of um, abilities to reach audiences, it's content, content, content. And I always feel the stronger the content, the more likely it'll get funded. So the bigger the idea, 
the bigger and the uniqueness of that opportunity with content, that there is that spirit of finding a way to get that funded. Now, I'll be truthful, there are things that I still feel are just great content initiatives that haven't been able to be funded yet, but that may be just because we haven't touched or reached and find the right audiences. But I would say if you have a great idea uh, for whatever it is, as it relates to content on various platforms, I think the funding will find itself to support that opportunity because I think all of us, including, you know, the commercial side, you know, the cable side, the public broadcasting side, we're all looking for uniqueness in uh, finding that new content strategy or program or, or way to reach uh, a new audience with something different that we haven't had before uh, to basically compete in, in the marketplace. Do you see the public media audience changing? Well, I hope so. Um, we need to go younger, clearly. And, um, you know, I think our demographics skew much like 55 plus. You know, it's almost like we see them with our children's program and we may not see them until they're 40. Uh, and so I think in that, you know, sort of demographic between, uh, I'd say 20 to 45, um, we've got to find ways to build that audience and find that content uh, opportunity. And that's where maybe, you know, the people looking to, you know, really try to, you know, find, you know, new ways to develop content. We're, you know, I think we're all in, in our business trying to find that, that, uh, that age of 20 to 45 um, market of what things will whet their appetite that then as they go old, you know, grow older with us, they're already attuned to watching our media. So they become family. And then the things that we do offer as they get older uh, will, again, limit their need to have 30 choices. And it may be down to just 10. And that we would be in that top 10. Okay. Why do you think brands like PBS and NPR have so much power? And perhaps you can explain your relationship with those brands through WNED and WBFO? Yeah. Well, the big thing is being true to your, your um, mission and your goal of uh, high quality content. And, you know, I we think we talked about a little earlier about balance and fairness when you are doing the news and not trying to be something that uh, we're not. And, you know, clearly we could move in other directions that others are doing, but I think people see us much differently than others. And so they come to us because of that uniqueness of what we do and that balance of content and diversity of things that we offer, because there are not a lot of entities investing in operas or, um, you know, plays or theater, um, you know, all the things that make us so special like in education, uh, you know, because there's no, there's not enough profit there for, for many of those and, and not enough big audiences per se. But I think the fact that we've built a structure that's highly competitive within ourselves in public broadcasting, and even for WNED, of when we do something, let's do it well or not do it at all. So I think there are very rarely you hear somebody that's coming to public, uh, you know, PBS or hopefully on our air that says, boy, I was disappointed in that program. It wasn't what I expected or it was so well, you know, so, you know, not 
produce well at all, or it was just, you know, you know, not worth coming back watching again. I think there, there are very few, if I can count on one hand, where I've heard that. And I think that's because staying to our core mission, continuing to try to grow member-based support that allows us to have that ability to produce to that level is all key to our future. And I think if we start losing that, we'll start losing share, start losing audience and start losing membership, which is the real business of what we do to be able to do the work that we do. So in your opinion, is there a direct relationship between a healthy public media engine and a healthy democracy? I, 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 I want to believe that there is. I, I do believe people see public media as um, a alternative to what they're not getting elsewhere. And I think they hopefully realize that we've got to keep it strong. Um, we've got to put the sort of you know federal state uh, membership corporations foundation dollars into it because there's no one quite doing all that they're doing from education all the way up to you know the ability to uh, deal with uh, you know some of the real strong you know issues that are facing the world or you know our country uh, and to the level that we do it I think people realize there's got to be that sort of position to always protect it and then hopefully uh, make it stronger uh, for the future. So when we talk about the world and a global perspective and given your time with this particular mission with public media, how do you think we compare to public media around the world or what have you seen in Africa, Europe, you know, places like that? Yeah, well, you know, clearly a, a lot of these other entities are being federal, uh, funded, you know, from, you know, um, you know, the federal government or um, funded from um, state uh, support, depending on the country uh, and the mandates there. Um, sometimes it may not be as diverse as I think we see it in Canada or in the U.S. Um, uh, or I would say even, you know, uh, looking in Europe, you know, I think their public broadcasting is very diverse, BBC and all that they offer. Uh, and the strong support that they get, you know, from their government, you know, for that. Um, I think there are countries that maybe don't put the sort of emphasis in uh, either uh, federal uh, or, you know, sort of dollars to, to make it as global and diverse as, you know, these other countries do. Um, but I, I do think for those who understand the importance of public media, the countries that do, I think there is more of a sharing opportunity that is taking place uh, among all of us to you know, realize that we can't produce it all. And that, you know, as you know, on our air, there are a lot of acquisitions that come from the BBC, uh, that come from Europe, that come from Japan, uh, that come from Canada. And I think, you know, vice versa, I think there are a lot of things that we feed back to these countries. But clearly, um, I think there are much stronger commitments in certain countries than others. And I, I just hope that, you know, uh, the U.S. and Canada can maintain their real commitment to, to public media because it does make a difference. What do you think is the one big challenge uh, still facing public media, at least from your perspective? Well, part of it is being able, you know, to find the rights on things that, you know, have been the sort of, um, 
I guess you would call it mainstays of uh, public broadcasting. You know, we're finding that some of our product is finding its way back into the commercial world, mainly because at times we can't afford it. I mean, a good example is Sesame Street. Who would have thought that Sesame Street now has its first broadcast on HBO? Uh, and I can go through a number of programs that have found their way maybe on the commercial wings of opportunity versus on the public aspects of uh, public broadcasting. But in a way, that may be a good thing because when we do lose things, that makes us hopefully become stronger to think of, okay, what is going to be the next Sesame Street? Uh, or what's going to be the next This Old House or things that have kind of slipped away? Uh, to allow us to think, you know, again, with that entrepreneurial spirit, where can we find that new opportunity? Uh, but it is a, a, an area of competition. And I, I do think we, we've got to be careful of making sure we retain the rights for things that allow us not to lose in the commercial interest. But again, that also comes down to having the financial whereabouts to find ways to support that commitment to public broadcasting. Okay, final question and final thought. What do we have to look forward to with public media in the next 10 years? What's it what's gonna look like? Yeah, well, again, Paul, I'm using you only because you've been a great spirit uh, with working with me and our efforts across border. And, you know, Paul, I, I do think um, as we talk about the new opportunities, you know, we've talked about PBS films, that so we need to get into the film business. Uh, theatrical film business. And we've seen a little bit of that with, you know, um, Dalton Abbey going into the movie theatrical releases. Um, Mr. Rogers, who um, Tom Hanks portrayed uh, on that movie side. Uh, I think there are a lot more opportunities like that. I'd love to see Ken Burns do something for theatrical release because I think the dollars there can come back to support the mission and financing of our sort of needs for the future because we have to find new revenue resources and sources of revenue that still play to the image of uh, balance and fairness and high quality. And I think the movie opportunities when we can then get back into movie theaters, um, we've got to start this opportunity of, of where and what sort of movie ideas based upon our, you know, sort of a basket of, of content, what things lend themselves to a theatrical opportunity, and then having stations promote that as a way of supporting broadcasting when they're at the movies. And there are a number of things that, even though we don't have to own them, that still could come our way using our ability to help promote them under the brand of PBS, because I think people will go uh, to the brand realizing, you know, the, the quality of that brand and that whatever they're doing, if it's in theatrical, how strong that may be in attracting audiences to see those things because of our brand. Because we have to work on clearly finding new revenue streams or it's going to be difficult, you know, if we're not growing uh, those opportunities for new future endeavors. Okay, an exciting way to end our talk on a very big idea. Uh, thank you very much, Don Boswell, for joining us for D-Next. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information, 
about this episode or any of our other interviews in this masterclass series, please visit us at dnextnow.com. Until next time. The origin of this criticism is this rumor about another big scandal in the city. How did you guess? Oh, Humphrey, I've decided to respond to all this criticism about a scandal in the city. The press is demanding action. What are you proposing to do? I shall appoint someone. And when did you take this momentous decision? Today, when I read the papers. But when did you first think of it? Today, when I read the papers. <laughs> and for how long, may I ask, did you weigh the pros and cons of this decision? Not long. I decided to be decisive. Uh, Prime Minister, if I may say, I think you worry too much about what the papers said. <laughs> Only a civil servant could have made that remark, Bernard. <laughs> I have to worry about them, particularly with the party conference coming up. These rumours of a scandal just won't go away, you know. Well, let's not worry about it until it becomes something more than the rumour. I'd just like to show you the Cabinet agenda. No, not just now. This is rather more important. With respect, Prime Minister, it is not. The only way to understand the press is to remember that they pander to their readers' prejudices. Don't tell me about the press. I know exactly who reads the papers. The Daily Mirror is read by people who think they run the country. The Guardian is read by people who think they ought to run the country. <laughs> the Times is read by the people who actually do run the country. <laughs> the Daily Mail is read by the wives of the people who run the country. <laughs> the Financial Times is read by people who own the country. <laughs> The Morning Star is read by people who think the country ought to be run by another country. <laughs> the Daily Telegraph is read by people who think it is. <laughs>